0: Our scripture today is found in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not Break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thank you, Bertie. And uh, Michelle, where are you? That was excellent. You know, a year and a half ago, we were praying for a school teacher. And God sent us the best school teacher that we could have imagined getting. And as a bonus, we got a worship leader. (laughs) And, and, And Scotland, too. So anyway, thank you very much. I love treasure stories, so I really loved this story. Dateline October 16th, 2017, four days ago. Astronomers strike gold, proclaimed the headline. It was just a faint signal, but it was uh, one of the most violent acts in the universe, revealing long-kept secrets of the cosmos, allowing astrophysicists to understand how gold is made. What they witnessed in mid-August of this year and revealed on Monday of this week was the collision of two super-dense neutron stars. Scientists already know. That all the heavy elements, things like carbon, iron, silicone, uh, calcium, are synthesized deep in the great nuclear furnaces of stars and then flung out into the universe when the stars explode. That's where things like rocks come from. I try to keep that in mind when I'm digging holes in my yard for my wife to plant trees. And those rocks keep deflecting my shovel frustrating. They are actually very, very rare in the universe. Rocks are extremely rare. Somebody somewhere in the universe would like to have them. It's just that the shipping charges would be pretty high. Now scientists know how gold is made because they watched as these two stars collided and exploded. And in the space of just a few moments, according to Forbes magazine, about an octillion an octillion dollars worth of gold was created instantly. Imagine that, an octillion. That's one with 27 zeros after it. A thousand trillion, trillion dollars worth of fine gold. In case you're wondering, that is enough solid gold to cover the entire state of Washington to a depth. Of 85 miles. In the twinkling of an eye. Isn't nature wonderful? As I read that article, I couldn't help thinking that. If we could just capture a tiny little bit of that. It would alleviate all the debt problems. All the budget shortfalls. All the poverty. All the financial power struggles. And we wouldn't have to talk about money ever again. But alas... What those astrophysicists witnessed a few days ago actually happened 130 million years ago. It's just that the light of that is just now reaching us. And so it's going to be a little while before any of that gold reaches planet Earth. It's going to take some time, which means this morning we are going to talk about money. So buckle your seatbelts, grab your purses and your wallets. Here we go. There's a story about a Christian guy driving to church in a hurry, and he's tailgating the car in front of him. This is not my story, all right? You just need to know this may be a true story, but it's not a first-person story. Anyway, the two cars come to a light. The light turns yellow. The car in front hits the brakes, and in the car behind, the Christian goes ballistic. He hits the horn. He makes lots of non-faith-based gestures, and while he's in mid rant, somebody taps on his window. He looks up and sees a policeman. The Christian is invited out of the car and down to the station where he is searched, fingerprinted, and put in a cell. After a couple of hours, they let him out. The arresting officer gives him back his personal effects and apologizes. I'm very sorry for the mistake, he says. I pulled up behind you while you were blowing your horn, using bad language, making bad gestures. I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school window sign, and a little Christian fish on the trunk deck. Naturally, I assumed that you had stolen the car. You can get pretty good at plastering the outside of your life with claims and behaviors of who you really are. But what really drives your life is character. And that's what's on the inside. Another way of describing character is how you behave when nobody's watching. Sooner or later, the light will change and character will be revealed. Today we're going to consider a particular character, Christian behavior, a particular Christian behavior which is motivated by character to a greater degree than most all other behaviors. Because when you do it, almost nobody notices. And when you don't do it, almost nobody notices that either. That behavior I'm talking about is giving. Specifically, financial giving, money. That giving money away is a particularly Christian behavior is almost axiomatic. Now that's not to say that people who are not Christians don't give, because many do. But Christianity is not about selfishness, it's about generosity. So it's fundamental, and it hardly bears saying God is a God who who loves to give all kinds of good things to his people. You look up the word give, gives, gave, or, or has given in a concordance. You don't just find a couple hundred references. You find pages of references, thousands of them. The most widely known verse in the Bible of all time is about giving. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave. His one and only Son. And whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul sums it up in 1 Timothy 6 like this, where he says, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. He's given us all things. I had a, a poster with that Bible verse on it at one point in my life. Uh, the picture was of this huge assortment of fancy chocolates. God has given us richly all things to enjoy. He is the great giver. And so it also goes without saying, almost, that God's people who are like Him and who follow Him will also be generous. They are givers. Last week, Jeff Rasco told me about a coworker of his who is going through a difficult time right now. Lost her home, doesn't have any place to live. And one of the other coworkers came into the office and handed her an envelope with $1,000 of cash in it. Just gave it to her. I asked Jeff, Is the guy a Christian? And he says, Yep, he's Catholic. Jesus taught his followers give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You catch that? The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Give to anyone who asks you, Jesus says. Paul says, see to it that you excel in this grace of giving. He commands us. He says, be generous, be willing to share. Generosity is not just a thread that runs through Scripture. It's like a rope that runs through Scripture. And so you might conclude that generous Christian giving would be a fundamental behavior of genuine Christians, wouldn't you think? That would be a reasonable assumption, right? And furthermore, God has set a minimum standard of giving. You can find it in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It is the minimum standard, the minimum requirement. In other words, God says, this is where you start in this grace of giving. What is the minimum financial standard of giving that God has given us? What is that? It's a tithe, right? Tithe. What does tithe mean? 10, 10% of your increase. Not 10% of your net worth, not 10% of your gross income, but of your increase, 10%. So, as a point of reference, let's look at some Christian giving statistics in North America. All right, These come from George Barna's research. George Barna, in case you haven't heard of that name, is one of the most well-respected Christian researchers alive on the planet today. I'm going to share with you some facts that he published uh, as of 2016. That's the most recent I could find available. George Barna reports that 73% of Americans identify as Christians. But how about practicing Christians? Well, Barna uses two metrics to determine what he calls a practicing Christian. If a Christian self-describes by saying that his faith is very important to him and she or he attends a worship service at least once a month, then Barna classifies that person as a practicing Christian. That's not a real high bar, but that's what he uses. According to that definition, 31% of Americans are practicing Christians. That's about 100 million people, 31%. 96% of those people gave money to a church or to a nonprofit last year. But less than 9% of practicing Christian adults give 10% or more to a religious institution in 2016. I think that is pretty amazing. Less than 1 in 10 Americans who claim to be Christians, who say that their faith is very important to them, who claim to be born again, actually give 10%, which is the minimum standard of giving. A minimum standard. Now, you'd think that there would be some correlation between those who say they are serious Christians and what they do with their money. But there's not. There is not. In fact, a decade ago, Barna surveyed only those Christians who say that they give 10% of their income to the work of Jesus. And he found that among those people, the ones who say they tithe, the average donation was just $1,141. Now, if your tithe is $1,141 and you say it's an honest 10%, how much are you making every year? Just move the decimal point one one place to the to the right. Okay, you're making eleven thousand bucks a year. Eleven thousand four hundred. This means that most of the honest Christians in America must be living well below the national poverty level, which is twenty thousand bucks for a household of two. Either that, or the honest Christians aren't telling the truth. One or the other. You see, the problem with giving money to your church is that nobody sees what you give or you don't give other than a very few people who pledge to keep it confidential. The treasurer, the auditor, the pastor, and millions and millions of angels and heavenly beings and God. But they're not saying, are they? At least not publicly. And so you can claim you're giving honestly, when maybe you're not. Barna also found out that of all the churches, evangelicals had the highest percent of tithers. 14% of their members say they tithe. I won't tell you what denomination has the lowest percent, but Adventists are considered to be evangelical And in just a few moments, I'll share with you some of the statistics from this particular congregation. But first, let's think about what Jesus said in his most famous sermon on treasure. Bertie just read it to us. And by the way, what is treasure anyway? What is treasure? If you look it up in Webster, he will say, treasure is accumulated wealth, usually in the form of money, but also in the form of any tangible thing of value. It could be gold, diamonds, cars, houses, motorcycles, boats, toys, furniture, art, antiques, anything. Treasure is accumulated money and the valuable things it can buy. Jesus says, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. Why not? Is it because treasures on earth are bad? No. Because some of them are very, very good and very, very enjoyable. Jesus is not against treasure. He just says don't store them up on earth. Why not? Because earthly treasures don't last. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, Jesus said. When I was in college, I had a couple of... uh, Friends and one of them would do this. Whenever one of us was, saying, was talking about going out on a date or maybe buying a new toy, he'd take out his wallet and he would pull out a bill and he would go like this. Right? You know what that means. Right? Proverbs 30 23 5 says it like this Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. They will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle Jesus said earthly treasures don't last they rust out, rot out wear out or someone steals them from you 37 years ago I bought an old Ford Mustang in a junkyard in Phoenix, it was worn out mechanically but had a good body and for the next couple of years I spent a lot of money and time putting that car back together um and I had a lot of fun driving it for about four years. And then one day before Colette and I were married, we were we were in that car driving it to a Bible study, and I went to turn around and backed into a telephone pole and and damaged it a little bit. Not bad, but I'd wanted a bigger engine for a long time. And I figured, hey, this is the time. I'll just pull that old engine out and I'll put this big engine, and swap it, you know. But in the middle of that project, we got married. And then we both got new jobs, and uh, so we parked the car. And everywhere we lived after that, the car came with us on a truck, including when we moved back to Maine. And it stayed parked there beside our garage in Maine for 12 years. Never driven, never opened, never looked at, just parked. And then in about 2007, my son Andrew began to notice that car, and he wanted it to drive it. He wanted to fix it up. So we, we opened it up to see what it would take to get that thing back on the road. It had totally disintegrated. It was just, it was, it was really bad, just from sitting still, just totally gone. The mice had eaten huge holes in the rugs and the seats, and the seat foam was scattered all over the place, and the rubber parts and the vinyl was all cracked. The seats were rotted through. There was mold on everything. It just had a A a stench of death and decay on the inside. All those hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars had disintegrated. Here's the really dumb part we put it all back together again. (laughs) Only this time the parts were three times as expensive, you know. And when we moved out here, it came with us on the truck. And guess what? It's deteriorating again. You no know, treasures on earth don't last it's not that they might be lost it's because they will be lost always either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die jesus is not against treasure God loves to give us good things to enjoy and use. It's not wrong at all to have nice things. He's talking about accumulation and hoarding, about using things to meet our security needs or our relational cravings or our ego desires. He says, don't store them up on the earth. Why not? Because their value is fleeting. So, Jesus doesn't want us hoarding treasure, right? Wrong he does want us to hoard it. He just, wants to, he just wants to specify where we put it. Jesus says, store up for yourself treasure where? In heaven, yeah. Now in his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn has some very good analogies about this. And by the way, this book is a keeper. And some of what I'm talking to you about today comes out of this book. If any of you would like a copy of this book, all you need to do is ask me or text me. I will buy you a copy of this book. You can read it in a day. It's not big. It's just small. Even though it looks big on the screen, it's not. Uh, But it is excellent. All you have to do is promise that you'll read it, and I'll give you one. All right? But here's what uh, Alcorn says. Imagine that you're alive in 1864. The Civil War is almost over. Just a few more months and it will be finished. You're living in the South, maybe Virginia, but your home is in the North, maybe New York. You'll be moving to New York as soon as the war is over, but while you've been living in the South, you've accumulated a lot of Confederate money. Okay. Now suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is near. What are you going to do with your Confederate money? Hmm? Well, there's only one smart answer. You're going to start cashing it in for federal dollars because only U.S. currency will have any value once the war's over, right? You'll only keep enough Confederate currency on hand to meet your short-term needs. Now, we're Christians. We have insider information. We're living in a country whose currency will become worthless to us when Christ returns or when we die, whichever comes first. So what should we be doing with it? We should be converting it to the currency of the country that's going to be on the winning side. And Jesus says, that's heaven. Heaven is going to be on the winning side. So invest in heaven. There's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. But when you understand that its value is only temporary, it should have an effect on your investment strategy. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's an investment strategy. To accumulate earthly treasure that you can't hold on to for long is like stockpiling Confederate dollars even though you know they'll be worthless. Jesus doesn't say not to store up treasure he just says make sure you're storing it in the right place the right kind he says store it up in heaven what does that mean it means investing in the kind of stuff that's going to have eternal value kingdom stuff not just because it's the right thing to do but because it's the smart thing to do Jesus is not arguing from an emotional uh, point of view here he has got his eye on the bottom line this is a logical appeal Okay. The investment specialists who run my retirement plan always say things like, don't look at the next 30 days. Don't look at the next three years. Or five. Look long-term. Look long-term. 30 years down the road, they say. When it comes to money, Jesus is the most shrewd investment advisor there could be. He says, think long-term. Invest in heaven. Only treasure stored up in heaven is going to last. In his book, and you've heard this before, Alcorn says, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Why not? Because you can't take it with you. Listen to what it says, Psalm 4, verses 16 to 20. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take none of it with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him, Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Today, the richest man alive is not Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. It's Amancio Ortega. He's a fashion mogul from Spain with a net worth of $85 billion dollars. The richest man of my grandfather's generation was John D. Rockefeller who died in 1937. His net worth in today's dollars was about 385 billion. Not long after he died somebody asked his accountant how much did Rockefeller leave and the reply has been a classic all of it. He left all of it. You can't take it with you. That's a fundamental truth. But Jesus gives us a breathtaking corollary to this truth, a corollary that Alcorn calls the treasure principle. Okay, You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus adds this fascinating statement. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We'd maybe expect him to say it the other way around. At least I would have. You know, where my heart is, where my interest is, that's where I'm going to put my money. Jesus says, no. No, money leads, hearts follow. That's a principle of life. Money leads, hearts follow. Show me your check register, your visa statements. I'll show you exactly where your heart is in life. Suppose for a moment you happen to buy General Motors stock. All right, I don't know why anybody would do that, but let's just suppose you do. What starts to happen? Every day you start checking the GM stock prices, right? News blurbs about GM that would have never caught your eye suddenly become very fascinating to you. You see an article about GM that would have once been boring, but suddenly you read every word. It's become very fascinating. Why? Because that's where you put your money, and your heart follows. Now, here's the question. How many of you would like more of a heart for eternal things? I mean, just just put your hand up. How many of you would like... More of a heart for the things that... Okay, you know how to get it? Put more money in the work of the church. That's how you get it. Invest more money in eternal things. Your heart will follow. If you want more of a heart for lost people, more of a heart to see the church make an impact for good in the world, then invest more money in the work of the church. God wants our hearts not our money. He can make as much gold as he wants. He made an octillion's worth a few years ago. Just think how many neutron stars there are. God isn't looking for donors. He's not interested in disinterested philanthropists. He wants people who are passionately interested in the things that he's interested in. He wants people so invested with the vision of eternity that they can't think of not investing in it. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. If we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of the temporal, we store up treasures in heaven, and those treasures will never be left behind. They will be waiting for us when we arrive. They will be in the form of people who are there for eternity, in part because we have we made it possible in some way, maybe large or small, but in some way, Your generosity and mine has helped make possible for them to come and know and follow Jesus and be saved and live forever in a perfect place. Imagine what that's going to be like. Imagine people that you meet in heaven that you had a part in bringing there, all because maybe all you did was put your money in the church budget. There will be men and women there who who will come up to you and say, you know, I was a student at Mountain View Christian School, and your faithfulness helped keep that school open. And that school is a big part of of why I'm here. Thank you. I'd lost my husband and my job. I didn't have ten bucks to my name, but I was able to get decent clothes at your community services. Thank you. I was searching for truth, and somebody gave me a book that your church purchased. And you gave to church. Thank you. I was a young mom with little kids and frazzled nerves, desperate for just a few adult friends, and your church had a parenting seminar. And here I am. Thanks for giving. 25 years ago, a singer by the name of Ray Bolts wrote a song called Thank You. If we'd had more time today, I'd have had it played for you. But it's about meeting people in heaven who are there in some small way because you invested in eternal treasure. You taught a Bible class, you taught Sabbath school, you gave money to to missions, whatever it was. And the last verse in that song goes like this. On and on they came, far as the eye could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. As Jesus took your hand and you stood there before the Lord, he said, My child, look around you, great is your reward all you did was give money faithfully to your local church well this month our elders uh, sat together and and uh, we began talking about some five-year goals for this congregation to raise the level of discipleship to help people grow closer to Jesus, because that's what we're about, right? Making disciples. So how do you, how do you get people closer in their walk with Jesus? And we thought about some five-year goals. We talked about, about worship, and we talked about small group participation and, and our school and serving people. And then one of them, at the end of the discussion, said, "Well, how about money?" And so we talked about money for a little while and we decided that we would like to set a goal of raising the percentage of generous givers in our congregation because generosity is a hallmark of Christian discipleship. Generosity is an identifying characteristic of genuine Christianity. So we said, let's set a goal to raise the percentage of genuine givers. And so the first thing you need to know if you want to raise the percentage is, what's the baseline? Where are we right now? What's current? So where are we? And I want to show you where we are, at least as of 2016. That's the last full, full fiscal year we'll deal with here. And this will be our baseline. And I need, I need to be as clear as I can with you about some facts here today. So... Uh, Let's just do a quick review. A few moments ago, we remembered that God has given us a minimum standard when it comes to the spiritual discipline of giving money to his work. The minimum standard is the tithe, 10% of our increase. How does the Squim Church compare with national averages when it comes to returning tithe? Well, there are 154 active families in our congregation Sometimes a family is only one person. Sometimes it's five or six or seven people. But we have 154 active families who are members. Active, we have defined as people who show up at least once a month. In other words, we see them once in a while. That's a low bar, right? We have a lot of families in the church, way more than 154, but 154 active families. Of those 154 active families, 75 of them gave at least $1,411 in tithe last year. That's the national average, you remember. Among American-born-again evangelical Christians, 9% returned an average of $1,411 last year. In this church... 75 of those 154 units returned that much. That's 49%. So we are way, way above the national average here. But we'd like to see that average go up a little bit over the next five years, wouldn't you? I mean, that's a reasonable thing to expect. In 2016, our total tithe here was $359,000. So the average tithe, for 154 active families, it was 23.34. Again, that's almost double the national average. But, listen to this now. Listen to this. Of 154 active families, 94 of them returned less than $2,000 in tithe. Which means that if it's an honest tithe, 94 of 154 families here are living below the federal poverty guideline. And I have a hard time believing that would be true because I know many of you. And 51 of those active families didn't return any tithe. Nothing. Zero. 51 of 154 active families returned zero tithe. I don't want to spend a lot of money on tithe this morning because tithe is the minimum standard. And guess what? The ministries of this local church are not funded by tithe. Not one dollar that comes into this church designated as tithe stays here except for that which I am paid, me. And I am not making $315,000, just so you know. Okay? That's a disclosure. Not one dollar of tithe goes to operate the Mountain View Christian School or community services or by heat or lights or new doors on the church or bulletins. It all goes over to Federal Way, to the conference headquarters, and we're going to consider what happens to it when it gets there in a few weeks, all right? But all the ministry that happens in this church, with the single exception of my salary, is paid for by offerings, The Bible says that when we come to worship, we're not only supposed to return our tithe, we're supposed to bring an offering in addition to that. Now, tithe is 10% of what we earn. That's the minimum. Offerings can be anything you choose. Half a percent, 1%, 5%, 50%, it doesn't matter. God lets us decide according to where our heart is going. All right? In this church, you can give an offering in one of two ways. You can give to a specific project, for instance, to pay for Colette's service as one of your pastors, because her salary is paid from local donations here, or to sponsor students at Mountain View School so that their education can be provided. That's a special project. Our three new doors on this building that you came through this morning were paid for by people who gave to special projects, okay? Okay. In 2016 of the 154 active families we have, 74 gave something to a special project around here. The smallest gift was $17, the largest gift was 15. Let me see. Advance uh, one more slide there. Uh, one one no, back, 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 back. Back, back Iris, back. Back. Back, you're way ahead. Back, back, back. There you go. Okay, this is a special project slide. Smallest gift was 17 bucks. The largest gift that somebody gave in 2016, um, $15,000. Okay. When you give to a special project, you write that project on your check memo line or you write that project on the line on the tithe envelope and when you put your money in there, every single dollar of that will go to that project, no matter what it is. Okay? You might want to write in, as a special project, the pastor's new airplane fund. That would be, that would be a special project. All right? Or the second way you can give to the church is through the local budget, the church budget. Most people do not write on their tithe envelopes, electricity or toilet bowl cleaner. Okay? But we need those kind of things around here too. So those kind of things are funded from the church budget. Our secretary is funded from the church budget. The lights and the heat and the maintenance, community services, our school operating subsidies. Okay, Evangelism, local evangelism, that's all paid from the local church budget. The copy machine, the kitchen supplies, all that kind of stuff. That's church budget. Remember now, tithe does not pay for any of that offerings pay for that. This is local budget. The money given to the work of this local church. In in 2016, of 154 active families that we have here, 89 of you supported the local church budget. The smallest gift to local church budget in 2016 was $15. The largest gift to local budget in 2016 was $17,000. $50. But 65 of our active families gave nothing to the local church budget. 51 families returned little or no tithe. 43 more families returned very little tithe, poverty level tithe. And and 65 gave nothing to local church. We have got to do better than this. We must. If you're in this group, and you know if you are, I just have a couple of questions for you this morning. What are you investing in? Hmm? Where are you storing up treasure? What is it that is so much more important to you than seeing the work of the kingdom go forward and people get saved for eternity? Now, this isn't to say that people shouldn't have a heart for the work of God in other places. And some people give a lot of money that goes other places in this church, and that's fine. Places that overseas, like where Dave works, where a dollar over there goes like seven times farther than it can go over here. But this local church is the hope of the world in this local area. Okay. And by the way, very little, if any, of your tithe dollars make it overseas. Tithe does not go to pay salaries of missionaries or people like Dave working for Maranatha. That is, that's not where it goes. Tithe from American churches is used almost exclusively to pay for American church governance at the various levels. And we'll talk more about that later. But if you haven't been given to the local church, then please start. Please Imagine the kind of stuff that we could do around here if, if, if 80% or 90% or 100% of us were faithful. Just a few more quick statistics before I close. In 2016, if you lump everything together, tithes, offerings, special, special projects, you people here in this place gave $614,000 to kingdom work. That is an astounding figure for a church this size. That is an, an, an indicator of health in a church of this size when you compare us to other Adventist or Christian churches of our size but here's what's interesting 36 of our active families contributed exactly zero toward that figure 36 of 154 and 80% of the money was given by guess how many 44 families 28% it's almost the old 80-20 rule Now you know that some families have been blessed with a lot, a great deal. And they can give much. And other families don't have much at all. And so they must give less. We know that. But generosity is not a virtue that is dependent upon your financial status. It is a virtue that is dependent upon how you respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit to your heart. It has nothing to do whether you're rich or poor. Here's what Jesus said. Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and, and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here's the appeal. Please be generous. Please. Please learn to excel more and more in this grace of giving. Will you do that? Because where you put your money, that's where your heart will go. That's just what Jesus says. All right, closing story. On a hot, dusty back street of Cairo, Egypt, obscure and littered with garbage, is an Arabic sign in front of a gate that opens to a plot of overgrown grass. It is a graveyard for American missionaries. And there's a sun scorched tombstone in that little plot of ground, that forsaken place, that reads William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden was a Yale graduate and heir to a vast fortune, but he rejected a life of ease so that he could help bring the gospel to Muslims. He never owned a car. Instead, he gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions, and he finally fulfilled his lifelong dream of becoming a missionary when he traveled to Egypt. But after only four months there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. And now barely visible on that marker is an epitaph describing his love for the kingdom of God and his sacrifice for the Muslim people. And that epitaph ends with this line, and I quote Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Less than a mile away is the Egyptian National Museum, and one of the highlights in that place is the King Tut exhibit, which is mind boggling. Tutankhamun, the boy king, was only 17 when he died, and he was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands and thousands of golden artifacts. His golden coffin was found within a golden sarcophagus, which was found within a golden sarcophagus, which was found within a golden tomb. Because the Egyptians believed in an afterlife where they could take it with them. But all touch stuff stayed right where it was buried. Until Howard Carter discovered it in 1922 and dug it up, and now it's all in a museum. Tut's life was tragic because of an awful truth that he will discover too late. He can't take his treasure with him. But William Borden's life was triumphant because, instead of leaving his treasures behind, he sent them on ahead. So thank you to every single one of you here who is faithful in your giving. And I pray that we can all learn to excel more and more at this grace of giving. Okay? Very abundantly, Lord. More than, we, more than we even realize. And I just pray that we can learn to be a little bit more like you. That each one of us, no matter where we are now in our giving, can learn to excel more and more at this special grace that you give to your people. We want to be generous. We want to learn to find joy in what we can do to to make others' lives better. And so just lead us that way. And we yield our hearts to your spirit this week, knowing that you will lead us at the rate that you know that we can follow. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.